Tonight on Talking Politics, with pandemic routines fading away, at least for the moment, the future of remote access to public meetings is up in the air. Some advocates say it's crucial that we keep it. Two of them join me in a bit to make their case. But first, when it comes to how the government spends the public's money, there is a lot to chew on right now. Michelle Wu submitted her first budget as mayor of Boston this week to the tune of nearly $4 billion. This budget is an unprecedented investment. It includes a 1% cut for the city's police budget, notably 9% less than she proposed during her campaign. Wu also outlines her plans for nearly $400 million of federal COVID relief money, aiming to use much of that to make good on a few other campaign promises, including affordable housing, childcare, and climate resiliency. Of course, the city council still has to weigh in, and now they have not only the power to approve or reject the mayor's budget, but for the first time, they can make amendments, too. And that makes it a lot more likely that the blueprint will shift before it gets the green light. At the state level, House leaders put out a budget plan this week, too, totaling nearly $50 billion. The proposal includes new investments in education, workforce development, and more, but none of the tax cuts floated by Governor Charlie Baker. Again, though, it is just the start of that process, not the end. For more on this and other big news of the week, I'm joined by GBH News City Hall reporter Soraya Wintersmith and State House News Service reporter Katie Lannon. Thank you both for being here. Katie, a state budget is an incredibly difficult thing to summarize because there are so many component parts, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. What are your big takeaways from the budget that the House just rolled out? Yeah, and I guess the, the headlines here, you mentioned a few of them, Adam, the idea that the tax breaks Governor Baker was seeking are not in here, but something that is is a lot of money towards stabilizing the early education and childcare sector, which is really, um, as I think everyone has known, taken a big hit amid the COVID-19 pandemic and affected a lot of people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, so that's a big focus of the House budget. They also put a lot of money in for K-12 education and housing. There's a lot more in here than the governor had sought on housing relief and rental aid programs, for instance. So there's quite a few things in there um, on the policy front, looking to take away the costs for calls to and from prisons and jails. That's a, a new idea. Yeah, that, that was interesting to me. They made a point when they rolled out the budget in the round table that they held for the media that I think we would be the second state, I wanna say after Vermont, maybe it's Connecticut. So I uh, I'll, can't get an instant fact check on that, but we would be a trailblazer if we made that move. Yeah, and you know, Governor Baker and his budget had proposed eliminating parole and probation fees, and that shows up in the House budget as well. So there's some interesting uh, criminal justice-related yeah. measures in there. Okay, just briefly, before I get Soraya in here, the governor, as you mentioned, wanted to provide a suite of tax changes. He wanted to cut some short-term capital gains taxes, talked about reducing the tax burden on senior citizens, renters, people who pay for childcare. The House isn't doing that now, as you've said, but Speaker Ron Mariano has said, well, maybe we'll do that later. How likely is that, do you think? I think there's a chance they'll do some of it. The House has been pretty cool, as has the Senate, to the capital gains ch tax changes, but um, House leaders have expressed interest in some of the measures um, around the estate tax and uh, rental deductions. And those, while the Revenue Committee has a May 4th deadline to uh, 
decide if it wants to act on some bills related to those. So we could see action maybe after the House gets through okay. its turn in the budget process. All right. Uh, Soraya, I'll ask you a similar question to the one I asked Katie. Given that budgets are really complex and contain a million things, what stood out to you about Mayor Wu's first ever budget? Adam, I hate to get on here and state what's super obvious, but her first budget is infused with the remainder of Boston's federal pandemic relief funding. And it's about $350 million. And the majority of it goes to housing. She and her team will tell you, they said this week, that that correlates with the biggest concern that they heard from Boston residents in their community meetings before their budget rollout. Uh, but it's really remarkable that uh, such a large portion of that money is going to address Boston's housing crisis. There are smaller investments also, economic opportunity initiatives and climate resiliency, but most of that money in Wu's first proposal goes to housing. Was it a surprise that we mentioned the 1% the reduction in the BPD budget? Did that catch people who watch city politics by surprise? Also, I'll admit that, that I don't watch it as closely as you. I'm not in City Hall like you. But when I saw the disparity between what Mayor Wu had talked about on the campaign trail and what she's actually suggesting now, I thought, oh, that's interesting. So what, what, what's your take on that? I certainly can't speak to what's surprising for everyone. I think for folks who have consistently watched uh, Michelle Wu, they know that when she campaigned, she was pretty consistent about saying the savings from the Boston Police Department's budget would only be achieved if they came by way of contract renegotiations. I think that concept has yet to be tested. Um, we've already seen contentious negotiations with her and um, public safety organizations. But I, I think in this case, she's been pretty consistent that that savings is going to come from not the budget, but negotiating contracts. Got it. Soraya, uh as we flagged at the beginning of the program, the Boston City Council now gets an increased say in how the budget is shaped moving forward. That's right. are, are there points of friction that you expect to see emerge as the council takes up the mayor's suggestions and maybe revamps them? Yeah, it really has to be that federal pandemic relief money and the capital budget, because so much of the operating budget is already allocated to pay the people that make Boston go. We hear these large dollar figures and think maybe sometimes that that's room to play. Right, um, discretionary spending, yeah. That's right, that's right. And so last year we saw the council sort of lean on the interim mayor and play the game of waiting until the last minute to see if they could get some more uh, federal pandemic relief funding for the budget items that they wanted money for. This time, because the process is different, uh, folks will tell you that that sort of gamesmanship has been eliminated. The council now has until the second Wednesday in June this year, that falls on June 8th, to make whatever amendments that they are going to make, and they'll have to work together in order to achieve that. Once they return a budget to the mayor, she has a week to then revise or accept. And then after that, the council has until the very end of the fiscal year to try to get nine folks together, because they need two thirds, nine folks have to get together in order to override any revisions that the mayor makes. Meanwhile, the mayor has to see if she can pick off five councilors in order to ensure that her revised budget 
is the one that we default to here in the city. When you talked about dropping the old gamesmanship, I, I was thinking, oh, I kind of enjoyed that. But what you just said <laughs> indicates, among other things, that there's a whole new universe of gamesmanship That's opening right. up. So that'll be interesting to watch. Katie, the state Senate rolled out a couple weeks ago a big new package of environmental proposals aimed at getting Massachusetts to commitments that are on the books when it comes to cutting carbon emissions moving forward. And they, I believe, just passed it last night by an overwhelming margin, so moving pretty quickly, quicker than sometimes things move at the State House. Am I correct that not everyone is a fan of the ideas that the Senate is proposing the state move forward with? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And you're right, this bill did pass just last night by a 37 to three vote. Um, the three Republican senators voted against it. They had put forward an alternative plan that in, in their opinion would have helped out ratepayers make the transition to clean energy a little bit more smoothly, kind of deal with some of those high electricity costs. Um, we've also, while environmental advocates by and large praised the passage of the bill um, as, a, as a big step for the state. There's also some out there who don't think it goes far enough, don't think it's aggressive enough given the reports we've seen come out of the UN and the IPCC on the need to adapt to the new climate realities. Some of the criticisms I've heard include not enough investment in electrifying and greening public transit mm -hmm. while setting goals. And there are also concerns that it doesn't do enough with the building sector to get rid of the home heating and building commercial building heating emissions. Um, people have said it's not aggressive enough going after fossil fuels, though of course that's the goal. Right, right. That's the, the pushback that I saw when I tweeted out a, a summary of the Senate proposal, I had all these people who I think thought it was my proposal saying, it doesn't go nearly far enough. Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, Soraya, a final question for you about city politics. The Boston Pride Parade, which is a big deal for a lot of people in the Boston area, is not gonna happen this year. Why not? Yeah, the nonprofit that normally would spearhead all of the work of setting up the parade decided to dissolve last year after multiple years of complaints and asks for reforms that then morphed into a boycott. We talk about some of those complaints in my reporting. Folks said that the events had gotten too commercial. There was a lot of corporate visibility and not enough emphasis on the grassroots groups that sort of do the work all of the time. Um, they weren't using pride events, according to these complaints. Boston Pride was not using pride events to really advocate for those who are most marginalized within the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, I think folks from that nonprofit will tell you that they were hoping one of the boycott organizers would step up and fill the void. And meanwhile, the boycott organizers will tell you that when a nonprofit dissolves, it takes with it its volunteer database, you know, its mm -hmm. institutional knowledge, its corporate sponsors. Um, one thing that I just think is really important to mention about this is that folks in community, a lot of them, and I say this in my reporting, are saying it could be a good point for the city to step back. And I think Julia Golden of Trans Resistance even has a quote saying people need to ask themselves what does pride mean and what does it mean to celebrate LGBTQ plus individuals? All right, Soraya Wintersmith and Katie Lannon, we gotta leave it there. Thank you both, appreciate it. 
Next up, two-plus years of COVID have obviously taken a huge toll in many ways. Far too many lives lost, lingering illnesses, isolation from loved ones, business closures, and lost jobs, to name a few. But as we've previously discussed here, it's also forced us to broadly rethink the way we do business. And these days, as we re-embrace some old routines, some of the positives are at risk of fading away, including the virtual public meeting. After two years of increased transparency and accessibility, the Governor's Council made the switch back to in-person-only meetings last month, a move the Boston Globe editorial board called a beautiful thing for incumbents, but not so much for the cause of good government. And it's still not clear what the future holds for legislative sessions, gubernatorial press conferences, or municipal meetings across the state. That is the impetus for a new campaign by a bevy of advocacy groups, including the ACLU of Massachusetts and the Boston Center for Independent Living, which are urging state and local government officials to keep on live streaming. I am joined now by the director of the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts, Cade Crockford, and Diana Hu, the chairwoman of the Boston Center for Independent Living. Thank you both for being here. Diana, let me start with you. What has the change in RMO over the past couple of years meant when it comes to participating in the political process for people who are living with disabilities? Yeah, yeah. And um, in thinking about this question, I think we've got to recognize that remote access is first and foremost an accessibility accommodation and one that people with disabilities have been calling for long before COVID and then COVID hit and we saw so many lockdowns and so many places becoming inaccessible. And suddenly there was this universal understanding of what inaccessibility meant, whether because of a disability or a raging pandemic. But our government was able to adapt and accommodate. And a key accommodation was enabling remote participation in public meetings which opened the door to people with disabilities who may have otherwise been shut out from their government. I've been driving a motorized wheelchair since I was two years old. And um, it was during pandemic uh, that I attended my first legislative hearing remotely. So people who have mobility issues, people who have chronic health conditions, who face accessibility barriers when traveling, these are some of the groups of people who can be enabled through remote participation to engage with their government in a new and empowering way. Okay, Diana just outlined some huge benefits from the shift that we've seen over the past couple of years. What else is there in terms of upside to our new way of doing business that people who are watching should be thinking about as they ponder this issue? Well, Diana hit on a lot of these issues, but you know, folks with disabilities are not the only people who have benefited from the shift during the pandemic to um, public meetings held on Zoom or on other digital platforms, or as we've seen recently, as um, government bodies at the municipal level have started to go back to work in person, what we are calling hybrid meetings. So that is, you know, the members of the body, whether it's a city council or a school committee may be in-person meeting, but there's still an option for members of the public, not only to view the meeting remotely, but also to participate, to be able to give public comment, to testify at council hearings and things like that. And this has, for the past two years, allowed 
huge new numbers of people to participate in their democracy. Um, the mayor of Salem, Kim Driscoll, told uh, reporters last year that there was a 700% increase in participation in local government in Salem after things went remote. That's an you know, incredible this is, number, by the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. 700%. This is parents with small children. This is seniors who have mobility issues or can't drive anymore. Um, you know, in rural communities, this is folks who don't have a car and have no way to access, you know, municipal buildings. Um, it's people who have work obligations. It's even, you know, childless, fully able-bodied people like me who just want to be able to cook dinner at night and, you know, while I'm cooking dinner, participate in my local government, you know, listen into a school committee meeting and be able to jump in and, and say a few words. Um you know, while I'm kind of like stirring my tofu or whatever, it's just, you know, it makes the, it makes it possible for so many more people to participate. And that I think is particularly important in an age in which um, the press, especially at the local level is really dying off, right? We, we have a, a crisis in this country where there are very few local newspapers left. Um, and, and that makes it all the more important that um, it's as accessible as as accessible as possible for people to be able to see and participate in their local government. I hadn't thought of that tie between the demise of much local journalism and the upside of increased accessibility. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. That's a, a key point. Diana, when we talked a couple days ago, you made a comparison between the remote access issue right now and the way it's been playing out and the introduction of curb cuts so that people can, at a, a you know a graduated incline, get up on the sidewalk, and there's a history there that I was totally unaware of. Can you, I guess, talk me again and Cade and anyone watching or listening through the comparison that you see there? Yeah, yeah. So curb cuts are everywhere nowadays, but the story of how they got there is interesting. Um, it happened in the 1970s when a group of disability advocates in Berkeley got tired of waiting for the city to make curbs accessible. So they took matters into their own hands. Um, they went to the curbs, they poured cement down, they made a ramp, and they wheeled off into the night. And these curb cuts were meant to be an accessibility hack and maybe also a form of political protest, but they worked and they didn't cost much. And soon it turned out that not only were people in wheelchairs using them, everyone was. People pushing strollers and shopping carts and luggage and bicycles and um, all their family and friends with them. Uh, it's very analogous to uh, what Cade was just describing. Um, and, and so these curb cuts, which were originally an accessibility feature, they became universally popular. And it's the same thing that we see with so many other features like elevators and closed captioning and audiobooks. And remote access now is the latest in a long pattern of universal design. And I think it goes back to what disability rights activist Alice Wong says that disabled people are oracles of innovation for the future. So when it comes to remote access, this is exactly what we predicted. This is what we demanded. And now we're pushing for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Cade, we mentioned in the intro that the governor's council is pulling back on remote access. Who else is 
backtracking to put my finger on the scale a little bit. And what's the argument or what are the arguments that they're making as they pull back from the kind of access that we've enjoyed over the past two years? We haven't conducted a uh, full survey by any means of local government across the state. What I can tell you is that I got wind actually this week that the city council in Boston is um, pulling back on one of the uh, transparency uh, accommodations that they made during the pandemic by um, ceasing the live streaming and digital participation option for city council working sessions. Um, that's really that's really problematic. So I've reached out to the city council president, uh, Ed Flynn, to try to learn more about why they made that decision. And I haven't um, heard back yet, but we really hope that they reverse course. You know, we were happy as a part of this coalition to work with city councilor and now state senator Lydia Edwards to file legislation at the Boston City Council um, last year that would require that city council working sessions and city council meetings and hearings, you know, well beyond the pandemic, no matter what the legislature chooses to do about the open meeting law, be open and accessible to people to participate remotely um, on a permanent basis. So when we heard that uh, the city council president had, you know, made this decision to stop uh, offering live streaming and remote participation for city council working sessions, we were really uh, disturbed by that. So that's one example that I know of that's just happened this week. That's a big one. I know that the ACLU, the uh, Center for Independent Living, and the other organizations that you're working with are backing a couple bills at the State House, one Senate bill, one House bill, that would address this moving forward. Kate, can you just talk us briefly through the specifics of what that legislation mm -hmm. would do? Sure, so we are, our coalition is supporting uh, two bills, they're basically identical, um, House Bill 3152 and Senate Bill 2082. And, and that legislation would op amend the open meeting law across the state of Massachusetts to say that um, municipalities, agencies that are subject to the open meeting law have to allow for people to participate, and this is ordinary residents, not, not the actual members of the body. So we wouldn't be uh, amending the open meeting law that's uh, sections that say that, you know, the city councilors, for example, have to be in person. Got it. That would remain the same. But for, for residents, for people who want to participate who are not part of the body, it would say that the uh, body has to allow for not only um, in person viewing and if they um, allow, if the body allows for it, participation, but also um, what we call our alternative means of participation. So that means whether it's Zoom or, you know, dialing in on the phone, a way for people to view and participate in the meeting through some sort of remote accessible means. Um, and, you know, it's pretty straightforward. The bill also has one carve out that says that municipalities, for example, maybe a town of, you know, 400 people in Western Massachusetts that doesn't have, you know, the technology or the capability or the money to be able to facilitate those kinds of hybrid meetings could apply for a waiver from the attorney general's office. But that, you know, unless you have a really good reason as a municipality, the year is 2022, you know, we need to get with the times. People have been doing this now for a couple of years, and there's really no excuse to slide back to the place where we were, you know, pre-pandemic, where you really had to be kind of a unicorn human being 
who has like endless free time, you know, <laughs> the ability to travel to City Hall um, to be able to participate in your local government. That's just not accessible, uh, acceptable anymore. Diana, we've talked about a couple closely related things in this conversation. There's the ability to, to watch what is happening in terms of the elected bodies that represent us, make big decisions about our lives. Then there's a, the ability to participate in any kind of conversation that they may be facilitating. And I'm curious in your take, if, if moving forward, if access or the ability to spectate is maintained, but if there is a reduction in the ability to participate, how meaningful is continuing to be able to watch if you can't be a part of the proceedings? Yeah, yeah, and for sure, being able to access live streams and recordings remotely, that's that's a large step towards government transparency and, and understanding its decisions. But I mean, what about the other direction about making decisions? Democracy is not a passive process. It's for the people and it's by the people. And if members of the public have the right to give their voice and their vote at a meeting in person, then that right has to be upheld when people attend that same meeting remotely. Anything less would be excluding people again, as was the case before we had remote participation and hybrid participation in meetings. So parity is really a must for equity in the democratic process. Kate, I, run, uh, I want to run one more question by you before we wrap up. We're almost out of time, but we saw instances during the pandemic of remote meetings, especially where COVID policies were being discussed, of groups coming in and essentially hijacking the proceedings, grinding them to a halt, screaming or shouting virtually at the people who were talking about various COVID mitigation restrictions. Is this something that people need to be considering if, in fact, we preserve remote access, remote participation moving forward? What's the best way to guard against meetings being hijacked by people who, in some cases, aren't even residents of the towns whose proceedings they're trying to derail? Yeah, great question. And it's, it's you know, been a challenge for some municipalities at, at varying times throughout the pandemic. I'll also say, though, as someone who has done a lot of work in municipal uh, politics throughout the state of Massachusetts, that... Um, loud cranks showing up to public meetings and disrupting them <laughs> in person is not uh, a foreign, you know, concept Point to take. local government. So this is not exactly a new problem. Um, you know, there are reasonable restrictions that local governments can impose. Um, you know, people can't come into a meeting and completely disrupt the process and expect that they should just be able to, you know, uh, derail a conversation yeah. or a meeting or a hearing. Um, that's true in, in real life and physical space, and it's true online as well. So there's there's no, you know, ob uh, obstruction for uh, for local officials who need to kick someone out of a Zoom who's, you know, Zoom bombing it or causing a disruption that would not be tolerated in, in person. Got it. Um, so, you know, that's acceptable. All right. Kay Crockford, Diana, who, thank you both. That's it for tonight, but do come back next week and tell us what you think. The email is talkingpolitics.wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics, or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. For now, thank you for watching and good night. <laughs>